Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In Plato's Phaedo, the dialogue, in the discussion between Socrates and the two Thebans, Simeas and Cebes, there's a number of arguments that are made concerning the immortality of the soul, either for or against. And I would like to try to treat these separate groups in part because there's a lot of them, and I think that it would be useful to break them down. Some of them are quite complex and have a lot of things going on, a lot of presuppositions being made. So what I'm going to look at is actually the very last set of arguments for and against the immortality of the soul. So we need to start with Cabes or Cebes, however you want to pronounce it, and one of his worries about the immortality of the soul. He's drawing an analogy, and what he says is the soul clearly is something longer-lasting, more durable than the body. Now, notice this is presupposing that the soul has a number of successive lives and that it leaves the body at death, goes off into whatever world that is, then it's reunited with the body, lives for a while, separates from the body in death, and then, once again, goes on. So the soul clearly outlives any one single given body over time. It enters into contact with a lot of other bodies. But, he says, maybe the soul could be something like this. And he's making this analogy. Maybe the soul is like a weaver who has woven a number of coats. And why is he using this example? Well, you know, the soul actually sort of weaves the body into something living. It infiltrates it and organizes it. The soul is the principle of life in Platonic philosophy. So a weaver has woven for himself many different coats or cloaks or pick whatever article of clothing works for you. So the weaver has worn many of them over time and they wear out eventually. The idea is this weaver has lived a long time, he's produced a lot of different garments, and he has one garment for a while, then that one breaks down, unravels, then he has another garment, then he has another garment. Now, he dies. And Sibi says, here's the argument that I'm making about the soul. Let's say somebody comes in and says, I don't believe that the weaver is dead, because look over there, there's his coat. And we know that coats don't last as long as human beings, so clearly if that coat's still around, then he's still around. Where is he? So, Cabeus is saying maybe the soul is kind of like that. So, you start out with the soul, and this could go through a lot of different successions. Soul is on its own, then it's united with the body, and in death, the body dies. Soul continues, eventually reunites with another body, takes that on, dies again, and what happens in death is the soul separates from the body. Without the soul, the body just breaks down into its constituent parts. And then finally, it's in the last conglomerate, the last integrated soul and body person, but this time the soul has actually worn itself out through this successive interchange with bodies. The idea is that being engaged with the body is actually not something particularly good for the soul. And the soul dies, and then soon afterwards, the body dies. Couldn't it be like that? Isn't that plausible? So, now if this is the case, if this is something possible, then you can't say, well, necessarily the soul must be immortal and must live on after this particular death that I'm going to experience in this life with this body. 
So this would be a real challenge. And Socrates actually treats this a little bit differently than he does Simeus' ideas about maybe the soul is a harmony and all that. He says, we've actually got to bring out the big guns on this one. We have to bring out some real metaphysical principles, the discussion of opposites. And here you actually have to, to a certain extent, presuppose the Platonic doctrine of the forms. So I'm going to presume some familiarity with that on the part of the viewers, but not an awful lot. Put in a nutshell, the Platonic doctrine of the forms is saying that for any sort of thing that we encounter in our experience that has certain qualities that we can predicate, we can say of it, like for instance, saying that something is just or something is beautiful, there is an absolute justice or absolute beauty or absolute whatever it is out there, and that exists, and that is unchanging, eternal. That's the form or the idea, and everything over here in the world that we experience participates in that and is what it is because it participates in that. So if we take beauty, for example, beautiful things all participate in the form of beauty, and the form of beauty is what makes them, in return, beautiful. They are changing. They're not actually completely beautiful. They're beautiful from this perspective, but not that perspective. They're beautiful at this time, but not at that time. Whereas this is always beautiful. It's always the same. And this is ontologically or metaphysically prior to any individual thing. As a matter of fact, in other places he talks about these as sort of copies. The form is what makes the thing that kind of thing. And the form also makes that thing become what it is. So when, for example, something becomes larger, it becomes larger by virtue of participating more in largeness, the idea of largeness, the ideal form that's out there somewhere. When it becomes smaller, then it becomes smaller by virtue of smallness. This is what you would call, in certain respects, or what comes to be called a realistic understanding of ideas, a realistic understanding of universals. Now, that's needed in order to make this whole argument that Socrates is going to adduce work. He starts out by actually making some comparisons. So you got three guys, Phaedo, Simeas, and Socrates. And Phaedo is a big guy. Simeas is a medium-sized guy. Socrates is a little guy, short guy. So what's the relationships between them? Phaedo is larger or bigger than Simeas. Simeas, in return, is smaller. Similarly, Simeas is larger than Socrates, and Socrates is smaller than Simeas. And of course, you know, transitively, Socrates would also be smaller than Phaedo. Phaedo would be larger than Socrates, but he doesn't worry about that. So, greater and smaller are relative terms, but greatness and smallness, according to Plato, are not actually relative terms. They're ideals or forms that are actually out there somewhere. They're absolute realities. And Phaedo is larger than Simeas, not by being Phaedo, but because of his size, and his size is a participation in largeness or, or greatness. Likewise, Socrates is smaller than Simeas, not by being Socrates, the thing, but by having that quality of smallness, which participates in the form of smallness. Simeas actually participates in both. He has the quality of smallness in comparison to Phaedo, but he has the quality of largeness in, in comparison to Socrates. So he's actually participating in both at the same time, but not in the same way. 
you might say, well, you know, here uh, Plato is actually violating his own canons or maybe the law that excluded middle. He's not because it's in relation to something else. Now, what mileage is he going to get out of this? Why is Socrates bringing this up? So he says absolute greatness is never itself both great and small. It's just great. It's just gigantic, or I suppose we'd have to say, you know, the most immense thing in reality. Now, the greatness that is in other things doesn't admit of or accept smallness. Uh, It's opposite. It's ontological opposite. What happens instead? So let's say we're looking now at Simeus, and he is larger than Socrates, but Simeus suddenly shrinks. Somebody uses a shrink ray on Plato doesn't have that idea, but just go with that. The largeness that is in Simeus, at the approach of smallness, it either is extinguished, it, it ceases to be, and then smallness comes in, or it goes somewhere else. Where it goes, uh, Plato doesn't actually say, but it goes somewhere else. The point is, when something is receiving an opposite, an opposite quality, what is happening is that in the process of change, it's losing one quality and accepting the opposite quality. So we have a thing, and it has quality X. And X and, we'll call it anti-X, are opposites to each other, right? So when this thing has this quality, but this is coming in, this is going to enter into that thing. This is sort of a metaphorical way of saying it is going to make that thing have this quality instead of that quality. What happens is before that happens, this has to either go away or it has to go somewhere else. And it's no longer there in this thing, which means now that this changes to anti-X. So, you know, small things become large, large things become small. Beautiful things become ugly, ugly things become beautiful. We can go on and on and on with this. There are some things, though, and this is why Socrates brings up the examples that he does. There are some things where this can't work out quite the same way. And he uses two main examples for this. One is numerical in terms of even and odd, and actually I don't want to go into that one. I much rather prefer the physical, natural philosophy one that he's going to explore, which has to do with fire and with snow. Grant, you know, in our frame of reference, as far as natural sciences go, these are really not that parallel. Snow is a form that water takes on. The the underlying substance is really water. Fire is really several different things taking place, you know, from a natural science perspective. It's combustion. It's the radiation of heat. It's also the processes by which things are decomposing. And Okay, granted, Plato didn't have access to that natural science. Let's, Let's see where he's going with this before we start worrying about that. So what is fire? Fire has hot, right? So fire has heat, snow in its turn has cold. And the question is, what happens then when its opposite approaches? The opposite to heat is cold, right? The opposite to cold is heat. So far, so good. Now, given the logic, given what we've worked out so far, what would actually take place? So let's take fire first. Cold is approaching. Imagine that it's like, you know, a very cold wind or something like that. And, you know, certain fires can actually be put out by lowering the temperature. So there is some some natural science to this, right? As the cold approaches, the cold and the heat cannot be in the same thing at the same time. 
It can either be cold or it can be hot. Forget, you know, about middle ranges because he doesn't talk about that here. So if the cold is going to make its way in, one thing has to happen. Either the heat has to just be wiped out or the heat has to go away somewhere else. And then the cold enters in. But what is fire if it doesn't have heat? Heat is something that is essential to fire. So what happens then when the cold enters in, it doesn't just kick the heat out, it actually destroys the fire. The fire is no longer in existence. It's no longer what it was by an opposite coming in. Similarly, heat, what does heat do to snow? Yeah, you know, it melts it, turns it into water. But, well, you know, let, let's go with this, see what, what Plato's trying to say. As the heat comes in, the cold is destroyed or it goes somewhere else. What has to happen then? Heat is within the snow, and the snow is, as snow, destroyed. This is the way opposites work. And you notice Plato is, is using these sort of metaphysical opposites uh, in terms of, you know, ideal forms, but also in terms of qualities that things have. Somebody like Aristotle will consider this later on and treat this in somewhat different ways. So, so far, so good. Now let's think about, instead of considering other examples, let's think about the soul. What is the soul? What qualities does it have? Well, among the qualities that the soul has are life. As a matter of fact, in a certain way, the soul doesn't just have life or participate in life. In a certain way, the soul is actually the principle of life, the bearer of life, that gives life to the body. The body is not alive unless it's conjoined with the soul. What happens then when death approaches? Well, remember, what are our two alternatives? Either the life must be extinguished in the soul, or the life must go somewhere else, right? Well, here's where it gets really interesting. Here's where you might not actually accept the argument. This is really the critical point, if you've accepted everything else up to this point. What is death? Plato's already dealt with this as being when the soul and the body are separated out from each other, right? So the body no longer has life. As a matter of fact, the body can accept death within it. So we know that death is going there, right? Can life leave the soul so that death can enter in? Well, death is the separation of the soul and the body. So, yeah, in a certain sense, you can say, well, yeah, the soul can separate from the body. But death in the sense of dissolution, in the sense of breakdown, you know, complete cessation, ceasing to be, no, because the soul is the principle of life. So what can it do? The soul flees. It goes somewhere else at the approach of death. Death never touches the soul. Think of it sort of like magnets. You know, as one magnet gets close, it repulses the other one because they're, they're opposites to each other. Well, actually, they're not opposites. They're the same one, same polarity. But you get the idea, right? This is a pretty ingenious way of explaining what's going on. Death never actually does end up arriving at the soul. It just sort of just grabs onto the body instead, kills that, separates it off from the soul. Soul goes off as soul of the dead, dead person, and goes off to some other future life where it, it continues its existence. As a matter of fact, if you've actually done things right as a philosopher, you might not get reborn at all. But it continues in existence, according to Plato. Death in the sense of dissolution, complete breakdown, ceasing to be, cannot touch it. Now, the question that you have to ask yourself at this point is, is this a good argument or are there any flaws in the argument? And I think there's two things, two ways you ought to look at this. One is, are you willing to accept the metaphysical premises from which Plato is starting? 
So if you don't accept those, then you're not going to accept the argument, right? Or you're going to say, well, it doesn't have to be like this. There's no necessity to the argument. So if you don't accept those premises right off the bat, you know, like say the doctrine of forms or Plato's understanding of opposition, the game's over. Maybe it's not so interesting if, if that's the case. Even if that is the case, you can go on and ask a further set of questions. Granted that these premises are true, would the conclusion necessarily follow? Or has there been anything hinky, any sort of sleight of hand going on here that Plato himself either didn't realize or put out there as a bad argument for us to try to figure out, you know, maybe there's a better argument or maybe this could be shored up? Well, the real problem with this, aside from some of the, you know, natural science assumptions and all that, which we know don't work, which is not very interesting, really. One, you know, this is an interesting thing because of the way in which the argument is set up. There's kind of an equivocation, isn't there? Meaning the word is used in several different ways for both death and life. There's an equation of the soul with life that's a little bit different than the equation of snow with cold or fire with heat. If the soul really is life itself and cannot accept death, does that mean that my soul is in your soul, or there's some sort of soul out there, form of the soul that's in every soul. It gets very, very confusing at this point if we follow this out. That's where I'm going to leave this off. I'm not going to try to, you know, resolve this. I'm just going to say maybe there's something questionable here. There's the metaphysical postulates or premises, and then there's the way in which the argument itself is conducted. If you actually accept these, this is not a bad response. Maybe this could, in fact, be a depiction of the way things work for some other reason. But that's where I'm going to leave off with, with this argument. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all... Keep studying these great philosophical works.